Prisons are exactly the sort of environment where you might think that corruption would easily develop and prosper, which is why it is perhaps a bit surprising that relatively little has been done so far to tackle it. In the ninth of our expert blog series, former UK prison governor and criminal justice expert John Podmore said that recognition that corruption is widespread is long overdue. He describes the main types of corrupt practices that tend to occur and looks at the few states who have taken concrete steps to address it. While we recognise that there is corruption in politics, business, sport and most other walks of life, we're reluctant to accept the possibility, let alone recognise the actuality, of corruption within our prison systems. It's arguable that prison is precisely the sort of environment where corruption would readily develop and prosper. Now this is not to condemn all the hard-working people in and around our prison systems who are striving to provide decent and safe environments that protect the communities they're there to serve. What it is is to recognise the uniquely difficult and complex environment that is a prison. People in prison are not a homogeneous group. Many are convicted of crimes, others are innocent awaiting trial. There are children incarcerated only because prison is where their parent is. Others are locked up for political reasons or where health systems have insufficient capacity to care for those with mental health, drug and alcohol problems. Nevertheless, it is a toxic combination, an environment where crime is a fact of life and an environment often under severe financial, political and structural pressure. It is not only those incarcerated who comprise a complex, heterogeneous group. Those charged with their care are equally diverse. Many are carefully recruited, well-trained, adequately remunerated and professionally led. Others are not. Some are directly employed, while in some jurisdictions, private companies provide staff. In addition, there will be specialists such as doctors and teachers and NGOs and a wide range of volunteers may augment all. The success or otherwise of prison systems depends primarily on the interaction and the relationships of these two groups of people. There are a plethora of international treaties and obligations and a wide variety of oversight mechanisms, but it is staff-prisoner relationships which are the bedrock of decent and humane systems and the primary agents of reform. When we get it right, policies will be implemented and practice will improve. When we get it wrong, attempts at reform will be futile. Where we get it badly wrong, there will be corruption. And it is in the complex and varied manifestations of corruption that much of our denial of the problem comes. Corruption will occur where staff-prisoner relationships are inappropriate, out of balance, or simply criminal. And within that context, we must accept that staff can corrupt prisoners and prisoners can corrupt staff. Corrupt practices can be best understood using Black's Law Dictionary of 1968, where three terms are used. Misfeasance, where an individual improperly performs a duty. Malfeasance, involving direct misconduct or wrongful conduct. And nonfeasance, often described as looking the other way or an act of omission. Most acts of misfeasance will revolve around general treatment of and conditions for prisoners and can give rise, for example, to families being required to pay bribes to prison staff merely for their relative to receive basic provisions such as food. Malfeasance involves more readily identified misconduct such as the trafficking of drugs and mobile phones, embezzlement, theft, assisting escapes, 
and active involvement with serious organised crime. The last category, non-feasance, is probably the most common form of misconduct, reflecting a culture that sees informing on others as more pejorative than ensuring that rules are followed and decent and humane treatment regarded as non-negotiable. The first step in tackling corruption in a prison system is acknowledging the problem, not as a condemnation of it or as a result of catastrophic events, but as a basic recognition of the vulnerability of the system and a desire to manage it effectively and professionally. Some jurisdictions, such as South Africa, have enshrined their commitment in law with the Correctional Service Act of 1998 and augmented it with a code of conduct for staff which is distributed in laminated format to all employees. Having acknowledged that corruption can occur, it is necessary to assess the risks in individual prisons and across systems. This is often referred to as a strategic threat assessment. In some prisons, serious organised crime may prosper, while in others, staff may simply let poor physical conditions and treatment proliferate by looking the other way. In some institutions, many corrupt practices may be manifest and it may be necessary to prioritise according to needs and resources. In any event, the third stage is a corruption prevention strategy, a description of what action will be taken and by whom. Apart from the UK, which had operated dedicated corruption prevention units, for example there was one dealing with staff corruption in London prisons, operated jointly with the Metropolitan Police, most countries operate units more widely across criminal justice system. Hong Kong set up an independent commission against corruption in 1974, and Western Australia has a corruption and crime commission. Korea launched an anti-corruption and civil rights commission in 2008. So while corruption in prison systems is inevitable, it must not be ignored. To do so is in itself an act of non-feasance. It must be tackled as a potentially insidious plague that flies in the face of penal reform.